James chapter 5 this morning is where we'll be. James chapter 5. We are almost done with the book. We just got uh, one more sermon, I think, and then that's it for James after this one. So, so you have patiently endured all this time, so let's talk about patience, shall we? Um, have you ever prayed for patience? Yeah, that was a mistake, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's only one way you learn patience, right? And that's through having to be patient. This morning we're going to talk about living with patience and uh, to demonstrate the fact that we need to live with patience, the sermon did not transfer over. So uh, I'm going to have to be patient as I, as I look to the screen and just see a blank screen there um, and realize it's not there, it's going to be down here. So uh, uh, y'all forgive me if I'm looking for that and it's not there. James chapter 5 verses 7 through 12. Stand with me as we read from the word of God. James 5 7 through 12. And you know what I'm about to say next, don't you? This is the word of God. And if we let it, it will change our lives. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Pray with me. Father, we ask you to use your word to shape us into your image this morning. Make us more like you as we hear and obey your commands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are all kinds of different sufferings that we face. Some suffering doesn't really seem like suffering in, in the traditional sense. We think of suffering, we think of something bad has happened to us. We think of the loss of a loved one and we think of the grief, the suffering that comes from missing them, wishing that we could see them again. And when it's early in your days of grieving, when, when that person has just passed, you can swear that you see them everywhere you go. It's not uh, uh, quite to the same extent, but when I moved up to Montgomery area from Mobile, I thought I saw people that I knew in Mobile driving cars up here. Now it wasn't them. And, and that's, not, that's, not to, that's not to say that your grief when someone dies is just that, that kind of thing. No, but it's kind of the same process going on. Sometimes you'll think you'll hear their voice or you think you'll see them walking from one room to another in the house or whatever it might be. It's easy for us to miss those people and say, I wish that I could be with them again. I wish that they were here. I wish. There's a, there's a suffering that goes through the grief of loss. And sometimes it doesn't go away just because it's been a month or six months or a year. Sometimes it lasts for a lifetime. Someone, someone asked me, when does it go away? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't go away in this life. Sometimes we think of suffering, though. We think of someone mistreating us. That's the context in the book of James. 
But, but I don't think he's just talking about that particular instance. But in, at the beginning of verse 5, he's talking about, or chapter 5, he's talking about the rich people. The rich people who are withholding wages. The rich people who are living in luxury while their workers are starving because they won't give them the paycheck that they need every day to feed their families. The rich people who are condemning and murdering righteous people. And we think of suffering along the lines of a persecution sort of suffering. That I'm trying to do what God wants me to do and people are afflicting me. People are oppressing me. People are persecuting me for the sake of Christ. We think of suffering in those kinds of lines. But it may not even necessarily be anything like that. It may not be a bad sort of suffering, so to speak. It may just be a lot of hard work. When the job is hard and you feel like it's tough for you to keep going, you don't see the progress that you're making and you know that it's got to get done and you're working through it, you're persevering. I think of when I was trying to learn Hebrew and now I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but all it takes is one semester of Hebrew to know that it's tough. First of all, it's a whole different alphabet and it reads the exact opposite direction. The professor warned us, he said, he said, you're, you're about, if you haven't hit it yet, you're about to hit the fog. You're about to hit a point where it's just incredibly hard. We all hit those times where we hit the fog, where it just becomes hard. It's hard to endure. It's hard to keep going. It's hard to continue working when it doesn't seem like you're getting ahead or even keeping up. You're just falling further and further behind. Maybe you've been there. I think of the accountant in tax time. Man, that's got to be a rough, rough time to be an accountant. At the end of January, trying to get everything out, and then in the middle of April, when all the folks come in at the last minute who haven't done any kind of preparation whatsoever because they've been putting it off, and you're just like, ah, I can't imagine the stress. There's got to be those points where, where all of us get to a place where we're working and we're working and we know that we've got to get through it, but it's just hard. And so the suffering might just be trying to make it to the end. Whatever kind of suffering you might be facing this morning, God calls us to live with patience. You see, God is patient. I, I went ahead and filled that one in for you on your thing. I didn't, I didn't make, I didn't give you a blank on that one. Reason is because I didn't just think a blank really fit there. But, but the verse that I mentioned there is Exodus chapter 34. Listen to Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. Moses is going back up on top of the mountain. So uh, uh, rewind a little bit. Chapter 20, Moses is on top of the mountain. God is declaring his word. He's writing on the tablets of stone 10 specific commands that really will basically sum up the entire law. Jesus would reduce it further down to two. But, but these 10 commands that God etches on stone and as Moses is coming down the mountain with Joshua, they're hearing this noise. And Joshua thinks it's a war. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. I, I think I hear singing and music. And they get down there and the Israelites are worshiping this golden calf. And Moses in his anger to, to demonstrate what they are doing to God's commands, Moses in his anger throws down these tablets of stone and breaks them apart. Chapter 34, God says, come on back up the mountain. I'm going to rewrite those for you. 
This time, Moses has to bring the stones. So Moses takes another couple tablets of stone. He goes up the mountain, and God is going to write down those commandments once again. But listen to what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, if you if you know anything about um, if you know anything about uh, Greek and about the way the Bible was written before the Bible was translated into English, and before the Bible was translated into any other language, the Old Testament had to be translated to Greek. There were Jews all over the place. Many of them didn't speak Hebrew, but but uh, but they needed a copy of Scripture. They needed an Old Testament to keep so that they could hear it and understand it and apply it. And so the, these translators translated from the Hebrew to Greek. We call it the Septuagint. It's named because there were about 70 people involved in it, in the process. And the Septuagint in this verse uses a word for slow to anger. So the way it's translated here is slow to anger. The way it was translated into Greek was the word makarthumia. Makrothumia, excuse me. Makrothumia. Makrothumia is patience. It's the word that James uses here in this passage when he says be patient. Makrothumia. Now makrothumia comes from two words. Macro, long, and thumos, wrath. This isn't a wrath that lasts for a long time. This is a wrath that is held back for a long time. This is a wrath that um, isn't exercised immediately. And so when we talk about God being patient, what this passage is teaching us about God is that he is patient with people who are opposing him. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you might tend to think, oh, well, that just means God's going to forgive everybody, right? No, no. Just because the wrath is restrained doesn't mean that it's permanently canceled. It's a rain delay. You, you go to a baseball game and it starts raining. They put a rain delay because they're wimps and they can't play in the rain. And it's actually because the field wet is, is very slippery and you're more likely to break something. So soccer players, uh, as long as it's not lightning, they're, they're fine with it. They can slip and slide all over the place. But there's a rain delay in baseball because the conditions on the field just aren't right. There's a rain delay on God's wrath. He holds it. He restrains it. He doesn't cancel it, but he holds it back. He waits. He waits. He waits. Why does he wait? Look at the book of Jonah. Why doesn't he just destroy Nineveh? Why does he bother with a prophet who doesn't really want to go and preach anyway to get him to go and preach to Ninevites, to people that he doesn't like? Why does God go through that trouble? Because he wants them to repent. God holds his wrath in order to offer the grace and the repentance that if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he holds off his wrath. He doesn't punish immediately. If he punished immediately, there would be no grace. So he offers grace. But that grace is a limited time offer. That grace only goes so far until the finally it is rejected enough that God says, then I'm sorry, it's time for wrath. That's the picture here of God. Verse 7 in Exodus 34. 
says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There are ongoing effects of sin. Wrath will eventually come to play when grace is forsaken. But in the meantime, God is patient. Now, why do I start there? James doesn't start there. Why do I start there? I think us having a sense of God's character. By the way, these verses are the most often quoted verses in the entire Bible. Scripture quotes this passage more than any other passage. I think that's telling. So why do I start with God being patient? Because God's goal isn't just for us to make it. It's for him to make us. Let me say that again. God's goal isn't just for us to make it. It's not just for us to see it through to the very end. It's for him to make us. God is doing a work in us. And so if we start with the recognition of God's character, his long-suffering patience, uh, Thomas Manton was a Puritan preacher. He put it this way. He said that patience is a sense of afflictions born without complaining and of injuries accepted without revenge. There's a time where God allows for evil to happen in order to seek the repentance of the one doing the evil. He goes on, by the way, to say long-suffering is patience extended until it finishes its work. That's what God is trying to produce in us. He's trying to produce in us a long-suffering kind of a patience, a patience that goes to the very end until its work is complete in us. You see, our patience, this is, this is going to be your second point, but your first blank. Our patience produces maturity as God enacts his will. Our patience produces maturity. God is working in us to build us into the type of people that he wants us to become. Specifically, it does this in several ways. First, it happens as we conform to God's character. As we conform to God's character. Now, I just say God is patient, right? You think that means we ought to be patient too? You think that means that we ought to hold off wrath? I do. James 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient. That's a command. There's no way to hide that one. That's a direct command. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Then he gives an example. He says, look at the farmer. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Now, Now, I knew a farmer. He would plant. He would try to make sure his crops were irrigated and had all the water that they needed, but there wasn't much he could do between the planting and the harvesting. Once the seed is in the ground, the farmer doesn't have a whole lot of choice of what happens. Now, he could try to do certain things. He could try to try to make sure that there aren't tons of animals that are eating the crops as they're coming up. He can try to make sure that there's plenty of water there, but he can't control the rain. Irrigation systems are great, but if there's not enough rain, there's not enough rain. He's got to wait for those rains. In this culture, in this, in this particular part of the world, there are two sets of rains. One would occur early, about October, right after you plant. You need that rain for the seed to germinate. But then the second rain would come later, around May. You need that seed so that the crop doesn't dry out in the heat of early summer. In other words, you would have a rain that would enable the seed to grow and a rain that would keep the crop from dying before it was ready to harvest. And you had to wait for both of those. 
If you try to harvest in between, it doesn't work. You don't get anything to harvest. You got to wait. And as one songwriter aptly put it, waiting is the hardest part. But it's in the waiting that he yields the harvest. It's in the waiting, in the depending on God in the meantime, that he sees the harvest come. And then, then when it's time, he can go out and collect the harvest. Verse 8, you also be patient. So we've got an example of God. We've got an example of a farmer. Now, is, is the farmer suffering a terrible suffering? Not exactly. It's just hard work. Sometimes you might be in a position where God has called you to do something and you don't see how it's ever going to work out. Be patient. Endure. Because as you are doing that, God is shaping you to be more like him. Second way that patience produces maturity. First, we conform to God's character. Second, we anticipate Christ's return. You may have noticed it in verses 7 and 8. Verse 9 mentions this too. Listen, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. First, it's be patient until he comes. Then it's his coming is close. Then now he's at the door. Now you might think, well, wait a minute. It's been like 2,000 years since this was written. I think it was a little bit off on his timing. Ah, day, day to the Lord is as a thousand years. We look at time and we look at it from our own perspective. And 2,000 years is a massive amount of time compared to us. But we don't look from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective, that's a blink of an eye. It's nothing. When you are from eternity past into eternity future, what's a few thousand years? It's kind of an interesting thing. His return is imminent, even if it's not immediate. There's a tension there. But it causes us to anticipate his return. I thought about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, they were dealing with a problem. They were suffering because of lost loved ones. They thought, oh no, we've lost these loved ones and now they're going, they've died. They're missing out on the promises of God because they've died before God has returned, before Christ has returned. And so, so now they're going to miss out on it all. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Uh, one version puts it, we would not have you ignorant, brethren, which really is good that there's a comma there because we would not have you ignorant, brethren, just is completely different. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who, asleep, who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Don't worry. They're not going to miss out. Verse 16, they're the first ones in line. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let me tell you something. If you are suffering because of the loss of a loved one, whether it was yesterday, last decade, or, or a lifetime ago, let me promise you with this. There is reason to hope because God is, is not slack concerning his promises. He will do what he has said he will do. And what he said he will do is raise them up and raise us up to both be with him. 
you can have hope in the midst of your suffering. A hope in the return of Christ. Elton Ladd called this the blessed hope. It is a blessed hope. You see, we get in the midst of suffering and we forget. Maybe, maybe it's that hard work. We forget that there's coming a day when the work will be done. We, we, look at, we look at the loved one lying in a coffin and we feel hopeless because we're, we've lost them. But there's a hope of a coming day when we are reunited. We look at suffering of oppression and we think that there's no hope because how, how can we ever get out of this mess? How can we ever get out, out from under the thumb of oppression? The persecution that we're enduring. How can we continue to make it? It's going to do us in. It's going to end us. It's going to, to, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. Whatever kind of suffering you're going through, I'm going to tell you something. There is hope in the coming of the Lord. Because if that suffering is from persecution, can I tell you this? You have a God who will vindicate your cause when your cause is Him. If it's the loss, the grief, the, the sorrow of death, that death is only temporary. The coming of the Lord, death too shall die. If it's in the hard work and you just don't see progress, there's a coming day when he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The end of First Thessalonians 4, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Aren't those encouraging words? Another way that patience is doing the work in us is, is in something we, that we don't do. See, when we're patiently enduring, we don't complain about each other. Do not grumble against one another. Why? So you may not be judged. Look, judge is at the door. Don't face a judgment because you're complaining about other people. Patiently endure. That's, that's sometimes hard because it's their fault. It's really hard when it's their fault, isn't it? When it really is their fault. Not just, I'm going to make it out to be their fault because I don't want to take responsibility. But I mean, they're actually the ones doing it. Like there were some rich people actually withholding wages and putting your family in, in dire straits. It would be hard not to grumble against them or going out condemning and murdering righteous people that aren't even opposing that. It would be hard not to, con- not to grumble against them. It would be hard not to grumble against the Christian that's treating one guy with all sorts of partial favors and stuff like that, but yet someone else is throwing up, just saying, you, you go sit or stand over there. You're not really welcome here. Someone who's speaking evil against their neighbor, it's hard not to grumble against them. But God calls us not to grumble, but to patiently endure. Another thing happens as we're patiently enduring. We follow the example of godly people. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You want to talk about someone who suffered? Look at any of the prophets. Now, Jonah's probably not the best example of this because a lot of Jonah's suffering was because of his own problems. But take a guy like Jeremiah. You know what they did to Jeremiah? They loved him so much. They threw him in a well to die. Paul talks about all the suffering that he went through, how he was beaten several times within one strike of his life. They considered 40 lashes a lethal whipping. You couldn't do 40 unless that person was already condemned to die. He had 39 several times. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been thrown in prison. And these aren't posh prisons with cable TV, three meals a day. These are dungeon cells. He had... He had been mistreated, scorned, chased out of town. 
They tried to stone him once or twice. I mean, I mean, all kinds of stuff to Paul. So as we're suffering and we're patient through that suffering, we are just following the example of godly people. We're following the examples of men who were afflicted because they were doing what God called them to do. Hebrews chapter 11, we know it as the hall of faith. Person after person, Abraham and 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 uh, Moses and Joshua and, and, and David and all these all these different heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter eleven, and then at the beginning of twelve it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every way and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But how do we keep running? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we as we endure our own crosses, our own sufferings, our own uh, uh, situations, we are following some godly men and women who have gone before us. And most importantly, we're following the one who called us to take up our cross and follow him. It causes us to do something else too. We depend on God's sovereign rule. We depend on God's sovereign rule. You know, there's not really much you can do when you're when you're in these kinds of situations. You just have to trust him. And that's exactly the point. That's exactly what God is looking for. He's looking for us to quit relying on ourselves. He's looking for us to hang up that medal that says, I can do it. He's looking for us to put that away and say, no, I, I, I have to. It's I have to depend on you. Well, behold, verse 11, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. This is another example of someone having a godly example for us. But but then he says, and you you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Where have I heard language like that? Oh yeah, Exodus chapter 34. Yes, he's doing that on purpose. You've seen how this turns out. You've seen. You don't just know that God has a purpose, but you have no clue what it is. You've actually seen it. You have seen in the working how he is growing you and shaping you and changing you into his image. You've seen in the midst of the suffering how God is developing Christ-likeness within you. And if you haven't seen it, well, now's a good time to look. If you haven't seen it, now's a good time to take assessment. Now's a good time to see where were you six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, whatever, whatever amount of time has transpired. Where were you then and where are you now? You've seen his purpose at work. You know he's in charge. So what can you do but depend on him? It's hard because we keep wanting to do it ourselves. We keep wanting to take control of it. We keep wanting to do something as though... It relies on us, but it doesn't. Right now, he said, be patient. You want the work of God? What can I do right now? Just be patient, endure, because God's got this. Quick recap of these points so far. We conform to God's character. We anticipate Christ's return. We don't complain about each other. We follow the example of godly people. We depend on God's sovereign rule. We also limit our words to the truth. Verse 12, but above all, brothers, do not swear. Seems like Jesus said something like this. Oh, yeah, he did. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't take any oath. Don't swear by heaven. That's God's throne. 
Don't swear by anything here. It's his, not yours anyway. Don't swear by a hair on your head. Don't swear on your own life. You can't even control the hairs on your head. Some of us try in vain. It don't work. Don't, don't, don't swear. Just, just say yes or no and then do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We lose a little bit of the command of that in English because about the only way we can translate that is with let. But it's a command. Make your yes, yes. Make your no, no. You say it, do it, perform it, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, when you're waiting on God, you don't have to overpromise because you'll underdeliver. Instead, you can just be simple, yes or no. You can admit that you're, you make mistakes when you rely on God. You can confess that you don't know when you rely on God. You don't have to be everything. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to maintain this image before other people. You can just be honest because you're not depending on yourself. Look, the reason I tell y'all when I make mistakes in the bulletin is because I know y'all are going to tell me. So I just go ahead and let you know. I already know it's there. If I make a mistake and I don't know it's there, come tell me. That's fine because I don't need to be perfect. I serve the God who is. I can make mistakes. Now, I'm really good at making mistakes sometimes. So don't feel pressured to tell me all my mistakes. <laughs> I might I might end up I might end up um um needing some help after that if if that's if that happens. But I trust in him. I don't have to be perfect anymore. Bottom line is our patient endurance endurance makes us more like Christ. That's why James at the very beginning of his letter right after he says I'm James and I'm writing to to people scattered all over the place. Right after he says that, verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some of them are hard. Some of them are good, but present challenges. Some of them are bad. Some of them involve great anguish and suffering. No matter. Count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. By the way, steadfastness, that's macrothumia. The testing of your faith is producing God's character within you. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't stop it. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is patient. So as we endure, we're called to be patient too. Whether the suffering is emotionally hard, physically hard, spiritually hard, or all three, we serve a God who empowers us to endure. So our offering to him, our obedience to his command is to live in light of that power and do what he's called us to do. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. There is coming a day when your suffering will end. But until then, let's endure. Father, in in this time, we turn to you and and we ask you a simple question. What would you have us do with this? We're, we're facing different situations. Some of us are facing things that are harder than others are. And some of us are in a relatively safe, comfortable place in life. Some of us are facing a lot of suffering. Father, would you teach us patience? Would you help us endure? Can we borrow on your strength when we don't seem to have any? I mean, after all, your strength is made perfect in my weakness. So when I'm weak, would, would you be strong for me? When I can't go on, would you... Help me take the next step. Would you empower me to continue in obedience to you? Would you help me not complain or grumble? 
not hold grudges against other people, whether they're responsible or not. <clears throat> Father, would you, would you do your work in me in this period of waiting, in all of us? Lord, I believe that you're calling each of us to both be patient and to be active in our patience. We wait for you. We know that it is up to you, and you are the only one who can do it. God, we also know that you've given us a role to play and that we, we must be obedient to you. So in this time, would you show us how we can actively wait? What is it that we can do right now that will honor you, that will bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? God, it's up to you. Lord, help us to know what we can do as we wait for you. You do your will in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.